I'm Liz with TeachStone, and this is Teaching with Class. On this week's episode, I asked class specialist D and developmental psychologist and research scientist Veronica Fernandez for their thoughts on ways we can be culturally responsive in our classroom observations. Culturally sensitive, aware, and responsive in the work we do is a big, important conversation, and we couldn't possibly do it justice in a short podcast episode. But as we work to bring life-changing teachers to all classrooms, we must also acknowledge that right now, there is an opportunity gap in education. And this is an ongoing conversation for sure, but one thing we can do to try to help is try to ensure that as observers and trainers, uh, we're teaching and using the tool without bias. So I reached out to Veronica to learn a bit about how she uses the tool and trains others on the tool and thoughts she had around this. Hi, Veronica. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Liz. Before we start, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your role and and how you use class. Sure. Um, I'm a developmental psychologist and I'm at the University of Miami. I'm a research scientist. I've been trained in the class since 2009 or 2010 and then I became a trainer, an affiliate trainer for the pre-k class and have been using it in my work ever since. I think it's an awesome tool that allows us to gain a better understanding of the interactions within the classroom. And essentially we use it to conduct observations within the community, sometimes for research purposes, sometimes for evaluation purposes, sometimes for program improvement and collaboration with a particular agency. But we've been using the class, the pre-K class, the infant and toddler class as well, more recently in our work. And, um, We really enjoy using the tool and we really think that it provides us valuable information about the interactions in classrooms. And having so much experience working with classrooms where you have um, lots of DLL students and a really diverse population, I'd love to hear what it means to you to be culturally or linguistically responsive when you're maybe observing a classroom or using a observation to lead a coaching conversation. Sure. Um, So as you mentioned, in Miami-Dade County, we have a lot of diversity, primarily Spanish-speaking, Latino, and Hispanic populations, but we also have other diverse populations represented as well. And we like to ensure that when we are going into these classrooms that we're being sensitive and responsive to the unique needs and experiences of the teachers, the families, and the children Mm -hmm. in the classrooms. And one of the things that surprised us, which for us in our research work was common practice, but we've heard from other agencies or sometimes in in other folks' research that doesn't always happen, is language match between the observer and the primary language of the classroom, which we think is critically important. So when we are hiring and training our research assistants and our coders and our observers that go out to conduct the observations, that's one of the things that we look for. So because so many of our classrooms have a lot of Spanish speaking going on, either through the instruction or just through the social conversations that children are having among themselves or that teachers are having with children, we try to hire and bring on board 
Spanish speaking coders so that they can fully understand the interactions and the conversations that are going on in the classroom. And it surprised me that that isn't always common practice or that that's not something that folks know in advance. So something that's really important to us is that we know the language of instruction in the classroom and we know the language background and history of the children and teachers in the classrooms for which we're observing prior to going in and conducting the observations. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's important is as, as an observer to reflect on your own language experiences, culture experiences personally, and to also think about the ideas and expectations that you have for the individuals or the groups that you're going to go observe. Because oftentimes you may not realize that you are being insensitive or not being supportive, but a lot of our biases or our tendencies tend to be implicit. So it's something to spend some time, something important that we should spend some time reflecting on, on what are our own experiences and what are some potential biases or expectations that we have of a particular culture. And do you see that being um, most vital when the population of the classroom has so many, um, let's say Spanish speaking students, that there is Spanish being spoken within the classroom? Or if there's a classroom where, you know, six different countries are represented and everyone is speaking a different language at home, but isn't, they aren't speaking it in the classroom. Do you have thoughts about like how a, an observer, certainly they're not going to speak all six languages, but then maybe more just knowing that ahead of time or doing that research? Yeah, I think that that's, the latter is particularly challenging. When there are so many languages being represented, it becomes much more challenging to have an observer speak all those languages and understand potentially the social conversations that maybe children are having amongst themselves. Um, and as I mentioned, at the very least, being aware of the languages that are being represented so that if you have somebody that at least speaks one other of those languages would be helpful. It's also having a conversation with the teachers ahead of time and being prepared for what will the language of instruction be on the day that I'm observing and, and being responsive in that way and, and demonstrating your awareness of the diversity that's in that classroom is a good first step. It's not the ideal, but it's, it's at least a, a good first step. And I assume it would help a great deal of knowing sort of all the population of, you know, it would help if there was a student with special needs or a student on the autism spectrum to know those same things ahead of time. Absolutely, because my experience and my expertise is with Spanish-speaking DLL children. That's what I essentially focus my research and conversation around. But there are a lot of diverse groups that we have to consider when we're thinking about cultural linguistic diversity within the classroom. It's not just about the language that children speak, but any particular needs or experiences that they may have. And I think it's a little bit challenging because, you know, we, we don't want to go to an extreme where we're singling individual children out because they have a developmental delay, right? That we're saying, oh, well, we have a different expectation for this child because he or she has, um, you know, autism or some other cognitive disability. We want to make sure that we are approaching this from a mindset of, of capacity and just knowing that there is the potential for a difference, but not making assumptions or generalizations mm -hmm. uh, because it's something that we know about a group. Because if we, we've met one child with autism, we've only met one child mm -hmm. with autism, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of uniqueness that also comes 
with the diversity and we shouldn't assume that there's homogeneity just because somebody falls within a particular group. So I, I think there's always this fine line where we want to be sensitive and be aware and know things about the children and the teachers that we're going to be observing, but also not make assumptions or generalizations because of whatever group that they belong to. Right, right. So one thing that comes up often is that with the class tool, we have domains, we have dimensions, we have indicators, and then there are these behavioral markers or examples. And I think it seems like for most people, the behavioral markers or the examples are where it can get tricky of not using them as a checklist or not saying these are the four things I'm looking for. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that of if there's maybe examples or places that you've seen these examples not be inclusive enough or cover everything that you might see in a classroom. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think that a lot of times, even though when affiliate trainers or any trainer conducts the class observation training, it's very clear that the behavioral markers are just examples of what you might see in a classroom. I think that when you're working within these diverse contexts, it's a little bit challenging because there are examples that are being provided, but the examples are not necessarily fully inclusive of everything we might expect or expectations that we may have in particular diverse groups. So I, I think that some work has to be done there to illustrate and to get some examples of what those behavior markers might look like in some of these unique settings. For example, if we think about positive climate, all children would benefit from having a classroom that's, you know, where, where there are strong relationships and there's positive affect and positive communication and respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we dig a little deeper and we go into those behavior markers, which are the examples that we might see, we may realize that some of those behavior markers or some of those examples are not necessarily going to be applicable or may not look the same in Mm -hmm. in those diverse settings. For example, again, I I speak to Spanish-speaking DLLs because that's my area of experience, but there's there's one that is warm, calm voice. And... (laughs) It's a, it's a stereotype of Hispanics, particularly Cubans, which is my, my background, but we tend to demonstrate our warmth and our love in very different ways. We tend to be loud and boisterous and um, very physical in our love, and our voices are not always calm um, mm. or warm as it may be described in, in the descriptor pages. So somebody who is not familiar with this particular culture may hear an elevated tone in the voice or may think that they're screaming and it may sound like it's actually a behavior marker of negative climate, where in reality, it is a demonstration of respect and excitement and positive affect and enthusiasm that might be demonstrating, um, that the teacher might be demonstrating with children. One of the things, particularly when I'm training individuals that are going to be working within diverse cultures, which is pretty much everybody that I train, is um, something that I, that I think is really great about the class is that you don't just look at what the teacher is doing, but you also look to the child and how the child is responding and receiving and responding to the teacher's interactions, right? So if the teacher is being loud, but the child is smiling and 
is receptive to that tone of voice or the child is also having a matched tone of voice, then that is an indication of this being positive rather than this being something that is punitive or negative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is a great aspect of the class tool. And it's something that I remind the observers of, particularly when they're in these diverse settings, that we really have to look at, at, at the child, not just the teacher's behaviors. And I think this goes back to what you said in the beginning of having to take the moment to check your own expectations and your own sort of bias. I shared this example before, but there was a video that as soon as the trainer hit play, you hear this really um, drill sergeant type voice. And my immediate reaction was like negative climate high, positive climate, low. It just, to, to me, sounded the exact opposite of a warm comp voice. And then as I continued watching, realized that this was a classroom with a lot of positive climate, that that was respect, and the students were showing it right back. And there was all sorts of signs of positive communication and a warm relationship. And that it was really more about me and my my just sort of gut reaction to a drill sergeant voice in a early childhood classroom. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't about the teacher. Absolutely. And I think that that's another, I think, advantage of the class where there are these behavior markers that we look for, but that's not all we look for, right? The scoring is done at that individual level where you're looking for the frequency, duration, and intensity of those behavior markers in the classroom, but you're also taking a step back and you're scoring that dimension holistically, Mm -hmm. right? And if you're thinking about positive climate overall, is this a happy place to be? And that gives you a general sense. Oh, it is, you know, children are clearly enjoying themselves. There's mutual enjoyment as well on the part of the teacher. This is a happy place to be. So just because there's maybe one indicator that initially strikes us that maybe because our biases are contributing to our interpretation, it's not going to affect the overall score. So I, I like that within the training process of class, there is that built-in check for yourself where you're looking at the individual details, but you're also scoring more holistically at the same time, and that's helping to, to balance itself out. Speaking of training, I also wanted to reach out to one of our class specialists, Dee, to learn how she approaches this in the observation trainings she does. Hi, Dee. Thanks for joining us. Can you introduce yourself? Absolutely. So my name is Deidre Manley, and I prefer to be called Dee. Um, I am originally from Hartford, Connecticut, and I currently live in the sunshine state of Florida. My background is in early childhood, and I am fell in love with class when I was working for the Office of Head Start and am really excited to be able to work with Teachstone as a class specialist. Interestingly, Dee had a very similar response when I asked her if she had feedback about the behavioral markers in the positive climate dimension. Culturally, a warm and calm voice to me may look like a loud or sound like a loud voice. Mm. And just because a teacher is loud does not mean that he or she is showing a level of disrespect. Mm -hmm. 
but versus they are respecting the child, but because of their loud voice, the emphasis is in how passionately they feel about what it is they're talking about with that child. So your example of a loud voice or, or the different ways a warm, calm voice can, can sound is one I think we hear a lot because everybody's voice sounds so different. And I think, you know, it goes back to that you're respecting the child and, and the teacher's needs as well. I think one that we see a lot is proximity and that proximity doesn't, isn't respect to every student. There are students that don't want to be touched and there, there are teachers that don't have that sort of cuddly um, personality but find other ways to show a, a warm relationship or positive communication. So I guess my question is, is it, as an observer, how do you know if what you're seeing fits those descriptions or fits those indicators if not for the behavioral markers? How do you know the teacher who isn't using touch or proximity with a student still has a positive relationship and positive communication with them. When I am observing and I'm in the process of scoring and after I look at my evidence, I'll typically look at my descriptive pages to help guide my decision-making process so that I can confirm the, um, the ranges for each of those indicators. One of the things that I really try to keep in mind as I am um, writing my evidence, I like to write down how did the child respond. If the child showed some evidence, for example, if the teacher is using a loud voice, if the child shows some evidence of humiliation or shows some evidence in their behavior where they begin to shut down or there's a you know facial expression like they are now sad and they sort of isolate themselves, then I would look at that as her, her loud voice is showing some type of negative impact on a child. And usually you can, if someone's loud, you can tell whether there's some warmth mm-hmm. in um, that loud voice. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things, that's how I look at it as well, looking at how the child responds to that, those particular actions. And so that's very helpful for me to be able to determine whether or not I am not allowing my biases to uh, come into play when I'm scoring. One of the things too is, is because I have grew up around various cultures, Portuguese, African-American, people from the Caribbean. I know, I have experienced the different cultures and know that there are some very distinct differences. And so because I'm knowledgeable of that, of those various cultures, then that also helps me not look at each particular behavior marker as the only behaviors that we identify to be a quality interaction. We know everyone has unconscious bias, but it's also important that we try to identify and train with those in mind. How do you handle this as a specialist when you provide those trainings? When I'm training, right before we get ready to get into the um, PowerPoint presentation, one of the things that I often, if not all of the time, 
make mention to the participants as we are talking about how the framework is set up and when we focus on the indicators and the behavior markers. One of the things that I interject at all times, I say the behavior markers is not a checklist. It is just information to guide your decision-making process. Mm -hmm. However, because we all within this particular training come from different cultures, you may not see examples that align with your cultural beliefs. So I am going to give everyone the opportunity to share an example, if they like, when we're talking about specific behavior markers that align with their cultural differences. And so one of the things too that I ask is, is if there's anything uh, that is aligned on the indicators for the behavior markers, which ones push your button? Which ones are you not comfortable with? And tell us why and how you would handle that if you're in the classroom and you're observing. How would that impact your overall observation and your scoring for that classroom? There are some differences, but yet we don't want to allow our buttons to be pushed mm -hmm. that will cause, because there's differences in cultures that will cause you to, one, get frustrated, to end up scoring the classroom all low across the framework. That's been really helpful for me to really get them to reflect back on their behaviors, but also open up the floor to say, hey, let's talk about it so that this will help us continue to use our class lens versus all of the other lens that comes with that person based on their professional experience, their personal values, et cetera. Well, I think, you know, the conversation we're opening up is exactly the one it sounds like you're having in your trainings of wanting to have everyone really share what is it what do these things look like to you what is a more comprehensive picture or list um, or descriptions and so I love that you're already having those conversations and I hope that we can we can even add more to the, the conversation absolutely thank you so much let's head back to Veronica for just a couple more questions this was something that came up in a conversation in our class community, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Are there ever behaviors, or what might be an example of a behavior, that a teacher might demonstrate that the students appear to be comfortable with, but that are still not okay? Um, and the example they gave was a teacher being really sarcastic with students. So if a teacher's being repetitively sarcastic, but the students seem okay with it. Yeah, I, I think that another example of that is, is maybe rough handling of some students. I think some teachers are a little bit more rough than we may expect or think is developmentally appropriate as well mm -hmm. as the sarcasm. And I think that um, we have to remember that as adults, we set the tone for what's normal and acceptable for children. Mm -hmm. um, and the children may be responding in a positive way because that's what they're used to. And they may be responding positively because they want the teacher to respond favorably to them in other contexts as well. So I, I do think that there are lines. I don't know the degree to which, you know, this teacher in particular or teachers in general are being um, sarcastic with children or maybe dismissive of their feelings or maybe rough handling them a little bit. Um, but although children might be responding in a way that indicates that they're okay with it, it may be because that's the tone and that's what they've learned in the classroom. 
but I don't think that has to mean that we, we accept this as developmentally appropriate behaviors. Um, I hope that when those behaviors happens, it happens within a context that the teachers are getting feedback and getting coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's, you know, that that's one of the things that hurts us, right? When we're just coders, if we're observing just for the context of gathering data or for program evaluation, it's not within the context of coaching. It's really hard as an observer to walk away from that classroom and know that you saw something where you can potentially make a difference and you don't really have the mm-hmm. modality right, to, to have a conversation, a coaching conversation with that teacher and, and engage in some reflective practices to, to sort of get the teacher to see what, what is and isn't developmentally appropriate and just have that reflective conversation with teachers. I, I think that we still should have some expectations about what is and isn't developmentally appropriate for children. Mm-hmm. And an, another thing, you know, based on the conversation that we were having before, which is, you know, what what is expected in certain classrooms and what about when children have disabilities or neurological diversity or um, have, have language diversity. Another thing to think about is that the class is an excellent tool and there's been a lot of research that demonstrates that it's valid and reliable in a lot of these diverse contexts. But more and more we talk about the class being appropriate but not necessarily sufficient where you know if, if you're working within a context and there's something unique about children that you want to know such as their language ability or such as you know their developmental trajectory there the, the class is just one piece of a more comprehensive system of assessments that should be conducted i know that that's sometimes cost prohibitive right that sometimes programs have to choose one tool because they don't have the funds to build capacity around the implementation of another tool or or the use of it but um, in an ideal world, we would use the class and something else um, to tell us a little bit more specifically about, you know, children's development or teachers' practices in particular. So, for example, if, if you were to be implementing a math intervention, you may want to use the class just to get a sense of the, the general pedagogical practices and the, and the general teacher-child inter- interactions. But it's not going to necessarily tell you whether math-specific language was being used or math-specific strategies were being used in the classroom. So oftentimes in a more comprehensive system of assessment, the class can be used in conjunction with a more specific tool that's going to dig a little deeper and give you more information or using it alongside a developmental assessment of children's language ability so that you can get a sense of how are children progressing in in both languages or some sort of a tool that's going to tell you about the specific dual language practices that are being used in the classroom because every child has the you know potential to benefit from the practices that are gathered in the class but some might need a little bit more support in order to benefit from those practices right there are certain strategies that are not universal that are specific to children who are dual language learners for example Mm -hmm. that the teacher may have to use in the classroom so that the child can can benefit from the instruction I I liked the math example. You're not going to know if that math intervention met their needs using a class observation. Do you have an example with the younger students of something where the class tool might not be sufficient or a a population where it might not be sufficient? An example that comes to mind that I can provide for pre-K, for example, is open-ended questions, right? It's something that we 
talk a lot about, and it's something that we expect teachers to to do and and facilitate with children. Um, if you're working with children who are dual language learners and have limited English proficiency, let's say, and the and the storybook that you might be reading to children is in English, there are there's more than just asking open-ended questions that you have to think about in order to be responsive to the needs of those individual children. So first of all, um, the, the book, if, if you want some sort of dialogic reading where the children are really going to benefit from understanding and comprehension and there's limited language proficiency, that book reading should happen in very small groups. So three to four children um, is the first consideration. And that's that's above and beyond anything that the class is really measuring. It's something that this teacher has to know and understand as a good practice for children who are dual language learners, right? So if you were to be observing that classroom, the, the number of children in that group may not be something that you capture if you're observing with the class, but it may be something that you were to capture if you were looking particularly for dual language supportive strategies. Another thing is that the teacher might ask that open-ended question but then have to use some scaffolding techniques to help children understand the words that the teacher's asking. She may have to point to some of the pictures in the book to help define some of those words for children. She may have to ask some scaffolding closed questions to get children to understand and build up their understanding to sort of loop back around to get to that open-ended question. So essentially what I'm saying is that there are certain enhancements, modifications, or adaptations Mm -hmm. that a teacher may have to know about that's beyond the class, um, that the teacher may have to put in place and utilize as strategies that are particular to dual language learners so that children then benefit from that high quality teaching practice that's being measured by the class, which is open-ended questions, for example. I think those are really helpful examples. We're going to open up the conversation in the community and and really want to hear from others what what a warm relationship or what positive affect or what respect can look like in your classroom. And I think the more we hear each other's examples and each other's stories of what that looks like, the better. Absolutely. And at, at this past year's uh, Interact conference, I, pre- I started this, this conversation and this thinking and a presentation that I did with Dr. Carola Oliva Olson. Um, she's at California State University, Channel Islands. Mm-hmm. And um, we presented on, on, you know, class and what else, which w- was titled in Spanish, class y que mas which is this notion that, you know, maybe these children need a little bit more. And, and after that session, a lot of the participants in this session came up and said, you know, this finally resonated with me because I, I've always liked the class, but I've always had this feeling of, of slight discomfort um, of thinking about, well, is this really enough for the children that I'm serving? Particularly a lot of the individuals were from California, where there's also a lot of cultural and linguistic diversity. Sure. Um, and, and we started that conversation, and Carola and I talked about the importance of getting these examples from the field mm-hmm. um, and, and starting to build a library of what these behavioral markers and these examples look like mm-hmm. um, from a lot of individuals in different contexts and capacities. So program administrators, teachers, maybe even talking to families, um, mm-hmm. researchers that are doing this kind of work. I'm, I'm just one person that is cognizant of this and trying to be 
responsible in, in our own team research, but there's so many people that are, are using the class and are in these diverse settings that we can really learn from um, that I, I think it's, it's great you know, for Teach Stone to call, to, to put out a call and say, hey, tell us what this looks like within your context. Tell us how you're using class. The, the other important conversation that's probably too long to have today as part of this, but would be a nice follow-up, is what happens in those coaching conversations, right? So how are you culturally and linguistically responsive when you're providing feedback and having a conversation with the teacher, you know, about the, the data that you collected and the interactions that you observed? Because what we perceive as being supportive or what we might appreciate as being supportive um, and informative may not be the same. Um, so, so having that conversation as well with like, what do you do with this information in these diverse settings and how do you communicate to somebody in a culturally and linguistically responsive coaching conversation is, is also a very important topic of conversation. I think we can learn a lot about the already existing practices and not have to reinvent things. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time. I am really excited to see what kind of conversation this opens up and to, to hear people's examples, but I, I do appreciate you sharing yours. Anytime, absolutely. I'm excited to follow along with this conversation. Thank you for joining us for Teaching with Class. Veronica and Dee offered some great suggestions and questions. And now we want to hear from you. Log into the class learning community and share your thoughts.